We'll continue our study this morning in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. We actually didn't quite finish chapter 7 last time. I left the last two verses for this week's message because it really kind of moves forward to this portion of Scripture in those last two verses. He has finished his Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Matthew is very systematic in his approach, at least in these early chapters of his Gospel record. Keep in mind that Matthew wanted to address the people of his own nation, the Jews. In fact, many scholars believe that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, the Jewish language, and then translated into Greek, which would be the manuscripts that we have extant today, and then from the Greek into the various languages of the world. But originally, it was likely to have been written in the Hebrew tongue for the Hebrew people, and it just was spread across the world once it became popularly recognized as the Word of God. And so it is. But his first four chapters, chapters 1 through 4, really gave us a presentation of the Messiah in his person. It identified right from the very beginning his genealogy, the birth that was a miraculous birth of Christ, and all of the various things that he began in that early days of his earthly ministry to do. And then, in chapters 5 through 7, of course, we have the Sermon on the Mount. So in the first four chapters, we have Jesus in the fact that they were to show his person as the Messiah, to present him, the person of Christ. In chapters 5 through 7, it was to demonstrate, to present the preaching of Jesus the Messiah. And in chapters 8 and 9 primarily, and there are others that we'll be looking at as well that emphasize this, but in particular, chapters 8 and 9 demonstrate, present the power of Jesus Christ. All three of those, his person, his preaching, his power, were part of what the Old Testament spoke of with regard to the Messiah. So Matthew is systematic in showing these characteristics of our Lord in these very early chapters of his gospel record. And chapter 8 and 9, again, are to present the power of Christ to the people. So very important to Matthew, a Jew, to make sure that his fellow Jews understood that Jesus was indeed the one that was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, if you want to turn with me to verse 23 of chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us there, and Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness in all kinds of disease among the people. So again, Matthew is following through with his earlier statement that this is what Jesus, now having been presented as the person of the Messiah, is also preaching and he's also going to demonstrate his power. In Matthew, he also talks about many, many other things. But these are the three primary purposes, I believe, of Matthew to present this gospel record so that the people of God could understand this Messiah that you have been expecting. He has arrived. This is the one that you were looking for. Not everybody received that. But many came to hear what Jesus had said. And many were influenced by the words of Jesus Christ. 
And certainly we find that to be the case as we end chapter 27, looking at verses 28 and 29, we see that very evident. It tells us there that after he had finished teaching, it was so when he ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Take note of what Matthew is saying here. The scribes were professional teachers. They were the ones that the people would go to to get answers from the Word of God to all of their various questions that they might have. They were the ones who knew the Word of God extremely well because they copied the Word of God letter by letter. They were the professional teachers of the day in Jewry. But they didn't teach like Jesus taught. They taught by referring to people who were on the scene prior to themselves, they would also always refer to another rabbi or another source to corroborate with what they were actually saying. But Jesus taught much differently than that, as we saw in chapters 5 through 7, that Jesus spoke very clearly with an authority that the scribes and the Pharisees did not have. And so that was amazing to them. They were really taken by the teachings of Jesus so much so that they were astonished. And that word, astonished, in the original Greek is a very strong word that says, wow, this is awesome, this is amazing, this is beyond our understanding. How could this man be so knowledgeable? How could this man speak with such authority? They were overwhelmed. They were just simply flabbergasted. And rightfully so, because he wasn't just another teacher. His words were the very words of God. That's why he could say with the authority that he did say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. So keep that in mind. They were convinced now that Jesus was a very, very powerful teacher, preacher of the Word of God who spoke with an authority that nobody else had ever spoken. He taught them, not like the scribes, but as the very Son of God. Now, verse 1 of chapter 8 continues to talk about now this power that he was manifesting. He had already been doing that, as we just read in chapter 4, that he went throughout Galilee proclaiming, teaching, preaching the Word of God, but also healing many who were sick. And they brought all kinds of people from various places, as far north as Syria, as far east as the Decapolis, and they were coming into Galilee to be healed, touched by this one who was not just a teacher, not just a prophet, but one who had the power to heal, doing miracles. And of course, that is also very much what was to be expected with regard to the Messiah. Now, we have looked at other passages of Scripture in recent times, and we talked about the fact that in the last days there will be those who will come and will be doing signs and wonders. In fact, in our study in Matthew chapter 7, we saw Jesus talking about those in the last days who would come to him and say, Lord, did we not do this and do that in in your name? Did we not heal? Did we not speak for you? And he said, I never knew you. But they are doing it with the wrong source of power. And that is the case likely to be in the last days because Jesus warns about that. In the last days, these things will become very, very common 
in the world because there are going to be many false Christs. There are going to be many who will speak in His name falsely. There will be many who will be doing miracles in His name. And He says, don't listen to them. Don't follow them. So there's a word of caution when you think of, oh, wow, this person's doing all kinds of miracles. It must be from God. No, that's not necessarily so. Even the Egyptian magicians could duplicate what Moses did originally when he cast his staff down onto the ground, it turned into a snake. They likewise did the same. Of course, Moses' staff ate up all of their staffs, but they duplicated the miracle. They were able to duplicate the miracles that Moses did, turning water into blood. Well, they could do that too, but the thing they couldn't do is they couldn't make from nothing like Moses did when he created this other plague where all the lice were coming upon all of them and they said this is the finger of God. They weren't able to do everything that Moses was able to do because Moses was doing it by the hand of God and they were doing it by the hand of the enemy of God. They had limited power and so it is in the world today. There is limited power to those who would follow after this God of this world but they do not have the power of God in their lives. We need to be careful. We need to be discerning. But Jesus had the power and He demonstrated that power. I want to turn to the Old Testament Scripture of Isaiah because Matthew will refer to that later on in the text in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel. But in chapter 53, verse 4 of Isaiah, Matthew quotes this particular verse. And I want to read it from the New American Standard, which is a translation from the Hebrew, not from the Greek, but from the Hebrew text. And it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Verses 4 and 5. Now Matthew quotes the first part of verse 4. And the reason I want to bring that up is because in the translation that I just read, it tells us He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew is going to translate that from the Septuagint, Translation, which is a Greek translation of the original Hebrew, translated somewhere around 250 BC, and Matthew quotes from that version of the Old Testament. And in the Greek language, the words are slightly different, but they have very much the same meaning as the original Hebrew. It's just the translations that we have didn't translate it quite the same way as the Hebrews who translated it from Hebrew to Greek did. So this is what Matthew says with regard to that verse in Isaiah. And I'll be reading it from verse 17 here of chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities. Remember we just read it, our griefs. It's the same meaning in the original Hebrew as well as the Greek. That word in the Hebrew does mean indeed infirmities, sicknesses, and bore our sicknesses. Again, our pains and sicknesses. They are the same words in the Hebrew but translated slightly differently in our English translation. It doesn't carry seemingly as much of the meaning as it did to Matthew when he quoted the Greek Septuagint. And so what he's saying here is Jesus came to heal 
our infirmities. He took upon Himself our infirmities. And He bore upon Himself our sicknesses. Now in Isaiah 53, if you'll notice as we read further into chapter 5, uh, verse 5 rather, it spoke really of Jesus dying and we recognize that as a fulfillment of that passage that Jesus completely fulfilled on the cross. And many people look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, and say, well, that was fulfilled by Jesus when he died on the cross. And yes, that's absolutely true. But Matthew is saying that before he went to the cross, Jesus was already demonstrating that he had the power to do these things, that he was not yet gone to the cross, although he did and would eventually go to the cross, but Matthew is saying that he came for the purpose of demonstrating that power that would be exclusively the power of the Messiah even before he went to the cross. And that's exactly what Matthew was trying to demonstrate here, that Jesus was indeed proving himself to be their Messiah. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, we find this first demonstration of Jesus' power. And this is one of the most remarkable things of all of the New Testament miracles that Jesus does. Yes, raising the dead was certainly a great miracle. That's just awesome, isn't it? You know, raising somebody from the dead to walk again after having breathed your last and then come back to life, that's a miraculous thing. And we don't want to discredit that or downplay that. That's an awesome miracle. But this particular event that is being described in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 and following, is a special kind of miracle that really has a great deal to do with both you and me, all of us. Because this person who comes to Jesus is a leper. And I want to remind you that leprosy in the Old Testament is a type of sin, a picture of sin nature. And I want to emphasize that because it's so very, very important for our full understanding of what is being presented to us here by Matthew. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 14, we find what's known as the law of the leper. And in that day, there was no treatment for leprosy. Leprosy was a disease that came upon individuals suddenly. It started out with maybe a spot on their forearm or some part of their body. And they probably thought, well, that'll go away. That's just nothing but a, a scar or you know, an injury that I might have inadvertently received. Uh, by the way, I'm commonly cutting myself and I never even know I'm bleeding until Sandy will point it out to me and I'll say, oh, I don't know how that happened. Well, that does happen from time to time. And if it were in that day, it would leave a scar and then if that scar did not go away, then the person would have to eventually present himself or herself to the priest. It would be something that you wouldn't want to do. You'd be very reluctant to do that because you know that if the outcome is what you might suspect it to be, it's going to change your life forever. And so the individual who has a, some kind of growth or, or sore on his body somewhere eventually has to go to the priest under the Jewish law. And when they would present themselves to the priest, the priest would examine it. And if there was any possibility that it might be leprosy, that individual would be isolated from the congregation of Israel for a period of seven days. 
And then he would be brought, or she would be brought back into the priest's presence, and if the spot or blemish were still there or growing, manifesting more, then he would declare it to be leprosy. And if that were done, then that individual would have to be set outside the camp, and he would live outside the camp as a leper. There was no cure. There was no way to treat it. And so he had to be separated from the rest of society, isolated completely, even from his own family. He couldn't go back into his own tent or house eventually when they lived in the land of Israel. But he would or she would not be able to have any kind of fellowship, any kind of communion, any kind of close relationships anymore. Unless, of course the leprosy disappeared. But that didn't happen. There was no record of that ever happening in Israel, with the exception of one, Miriam. You may remember that when Moses was leading the people, his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron kind of spoke out against Moses. And it angered God, and God chose to infect upon Miriam a condition of leprosy. And when it was discovered, she had to be taken out of the camp. But Moses interceded on behalf of his sister. And the Lord said, all right, Moses, for your sake, I will let her come back, but she has to be away seven days, as is the command in the book of Leviticus. She did that, and she came back, she was made whole, and God did indeed allow her to be healed or cleansed. Now, I, I want to emphasize the fact that in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Whenever leprosy is being dealt with, it is a cleansing, not a healing, that they were seeking. People were always cleansed from leprosy if they were to be cleansed. And there was provision in the law, in Leviticus chapter 14, if indeed a person was cleansed from their leprosy, there was a ritual that they had to go through to verify that that is the case they had to first come to the priest again and declare themselves to be clean. And when the priest would look at the former place where their leprosy had been, then they would say, okay, we're going to take two turtle doves and we're going to take a basin, fill it with water, break the neck of one of the doves and pour its blood into that water basin and then take the other bird and soak that bird into the mixture of water and blood and then let that bird go free. That's an interesting type, again, of deliverance from sin. That's really all that leprosy is from our perspective. It's a type of the sin nature. And in that breaking of that first turtle dove's neck and pouring its blood into the basin, it indicates that there had to be a sacrifice And that sacrifice was made. And the other bird that was put into that water and blood solution and then allowed to fly free was the escape from death that everyone who has been freed from the penalty of leprosy, of sin, set free by the power of God, by the blood and the water, now able to go on in life. The other died so this one could live. That is the replacement of our sin on behalf of our Savior that He accomplished on the cross. He died in our stead so that we could fly free. 
beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of the salvation that God has wrought for all mankind. That ritual, as far as we know, was never utilized by any priest in all of their days. The only other person that we know of in the Scriptures that had leprosy was a Gentile, Naaman. Remember, he was an Assyrian. He was a general in the Assyrian army. He became leprous. He had a Jewish servant, a little young servant girl who said, I know a prophet in Israel who can deliver you from this, who can make you clean. Well, he jumped on it. He went down to the king of Israel and said, All right, I want to be cleansed of my leprosy. What are you going to do about it, king of Israel? And the king of Israel freaked out because he didn't think there was anybody that he could think of that could do such a miracle because it was so much of an impossibility in his eyes. But Elijah found out about it. And he sent Gehazi, his servant, to ask Naaman to listen to what he has to say. As it turned out, Naaman thought that Elijah was going to meet with him and that he was going to do some miracle over him and and he would be cleansed of his leprosy. But what Gehazi said was simply, all right, Elijah says that you should go into the water of Jordan and dip yourself seven times into the Jordan River and you shall be cleansed. Well, that really bothered Naaman because he was thinking that, uh, you know, after all, he's the general of the Assyrian army. We've got rivers in Assyria that are just as clean as the river Jordan. What an insult that was to him. But his servants who went with him said, look, yeah, that's probably so, but what is it that is, he's asking? It's not so bad that you shouldn't even at least try. So he did. Dipped himself. One, two, three, four, five. And nothing was happening until he comes up out of the water on the seventh time and he's completely healed, cleansed of his leprosy. He was a Gentile. Jesus even refers to him in another place in the New Testament Scriptures as a reminder to his people that all of the lepers in Israel, of all of them, God chose instead to heal a Gentile of his leprosy. But again, I use the word heal secondarily. The fact is, a leper is cleansed. Throughout the Scripture, it's always a cleansing. So again, here in verse 2 of chapter 8, after Jesus had come down from the mountain and great multitudes started to follow him, according to verse 1, it says in verse 2, Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper realized that he was unclean. In fact, it was necessary for a leper to proclaim himself or herself to be unclean whenever there was anybody around. They couldn't come any closer than about six feet, four cubits. And that's probably where we get our COVID recommendation of six-foot distancing. I don't know if that's true, but it is similar, isn't it? They could not come any closer than that. And if they were approaching any individual other than those who were like themselves a leper, they would have to shout, unclean, unclean, so that the people would know that they were lepers and that they needed to be avoided. They couldn't come into contact with anybody. You see how desperate this must have been for this man to be 
a leper, and Luke tells us in chapter 7 of Luke that he was full of leprosy. It wasn't just the beginning of leprosy. He probably had lost some fingers or toes, even in other extended parts of his body. Noses would be typically gone. Ears would have fallen off. Whole hands, according to William Barclay, in the advanced stage of leprosy would fall off because they just simply blacken and, and just all of the nerves continue to just die away and the flesh begins to rot and it eventually falls off or gets eaten off by vermin. Think about it. You wouldn't even know it was happening if you didn't have any sense of touch. And that was the case of a leper. This leper comes to Jesus. Multitudes are following Jesus as he's coming down now from the mountain after having spoken to his disciples. And again, multitudes are following after him. He's heading toward the city of Capernaum. And this man, coming from probably another direction, sees Jesus on the way, and he knows that Jesus has already been doing many miracles. And we don't know, we're not told if this is the first miracle of cleansing a leper, but it's the first one recorded in all of the scriptures. And it is here that this leper comes, and notice what it says again. It says, he came and worshipped Jesus. Now that word worshipped is a word that is exclusively used for worship of God. It's not gave obeisance like some of the cults would say. It's not to be lessened in that sense. He truly worshipped Jesus. He bowed down before Jesus. And if Jesus was just a teacher, if Jesus was just a prophet, then Jesus would have said, Hey, wait a minute, don't worship me, worship God. Even the angels refused worship. Take a look at Revelation chapter 19, I believe it is, where John bows at the angel's feet. And the angel says, Don't do that. Worship God alone. This leper worshipped Jesus, and Jesus received that worship. And it says, and also, he asks him a question. Lord, will you make me clean? If you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you understand what this leper is saying? I know that you have the power to do that which I am asking of you. You are able, but are you willing? Now, that's a valid approach to our Lord and Savior. He is able. No one of us should ever think that our God is not able to do anything that we ask. But is He willing? We come to do His will, not ours. And there are some times when God does indeed heal when we come to Him fervently asking for His help and requesting healing of our bodies. And we have seen those kinds of miracles take place. But we also know that sometimes God withholds that. For whatever His purpose may be, He doesn't always heal everybody. Now, in the Scriptures, we find that whenever anyone came to Jesus, it tells us simply that He healed them all. He healed all of those that came to Him. But there are other places where it says that Jesus just chose one out of a bunch of people who were sick, who were suffering greatly from their infirmities, but he chose one out of that crowd to heal. Think of the individual that he healed from the pool of Siloam. He was lame. He couldn't get up off of his mat. And when the waters were stirred 
we're told by the angel of God, the first one into the water would be healed, but he couldn't get up into the water because of his lameness. And so when Jesus came to that place, the pool of Siloam, he looked at this one individual and all of the others who were sick around the same pool, he chose this one. He said, do you want to be healed? And that one said, yes, but nobody's here to put me into the water in time for me to receive my healing. But Jesus healed him, chose him out of that bunch of people who were all of them sick with some kind of infirmity, and he healed that one. It doesn't say that he healed them all. It was just that one. And that one started to proclaim his healing among all the people around in the temple. And it was for one purpose only, bring glory to God. He didn't always heal in the same way. We'll find later in the text in chapter 8 that he heals an individual just by simply speaking the word. Another that he touches as he is going to do with this leper. Other times, the healing is progressive. Think of the time when Jesus came across the blind man and he asked if he wanted to receive his sight. And he said, yes, Lord. Jesus spit on the ground and made some, some mud out of the spittle and rubbed it into this man's eyes. And he said, go and wash. And he washed it off. And he came back to Jesus and Jesus said, are you able to see? And he said, I, I see men as trees. In other words, he wasn't fully healed. He had partial sight. It wasn't until after that that Jesus then healed him completely. A progressive healing. Now, I don't understand all of that. But what I do know is that my God, your God, is able. No matter how he chooses to do it, no matter when he chooses to do it, no matter by whom he chooses to do it, he is able Is he willing? Well, that's the big question that this person was asking. Are you willing to do that? And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, it tells us in verse 3. I am willing. Be cleansed. Cleansed. Be cleansed. I am willing. Jesus answered, yes, I will do it. He touched him. Think about this. Also in the Old Testament, it is written that anything that is unclean cannot be touched. If anyone touches that which is unclean, that one becomes defiled. It is especially applied to dead bodies. You cannot touch a dead body. If you do so, you will be defiled and you will have to go through a ceremonial cleansing. If you touch a leper, the same thing applies you would have to go through a ceremonial cleansing because then, because you have touched a leper, you then might be infected with your leprous disease and become a leper yourself. So that which is unclean transfers to the clean, not the other way around. They recognize that. In fact, one of the Old Testament prophets uses that as an example. Can the unclean touch that was that which is clean and the clean not become unclean? And the answer is no. And then he asks, well, can the clean touch that which is the unclean and the unclean become clean? And he says, no. But in Jesus' case, he touches the unclean. He is clean. Unclean is touched. And there is no transfer from the unclean to the clean, but rather from the clean to the unclean. Now, the Pharisees might have rejoiced in the fact that they saw Jesus touch this leper. And they would have immediately said, aha, 
He is defiled. But that's not what happened. Why? Because it tells us immediately that leper became cleansed. Read it again with me. Verse 3, the ending of the verse says, Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. So they had no proof that Jesus actually touched an unclean man because he was no longer unclean. That which was completely impossible for them, but yet was provided for in the law of Moses, happened in an instant. A remarkable miracle has taken place. A leper has been cleansed. How does that apply to us? Again, keep in mind that leprosy is a type, a picture of our sinful nature. And when we come to Christ and we plead for His forgiveness, for His mercy upon us as sinners, He is willing to reach out and touch us in our sinful state and heal us, cleanse us from our iniquities, from our unrighteousness. He is willing to touch the unclean every time one comes to Him who recognizes himself or herself as a sinner. A leper is indeed coming to Him by faith and crying out to Him when he says, or when she says, deliver me from this terrible disease, this sinful nature. They first have to recognize that they are sinful. They first have to recognize that there are blemishes. And when they do, they don't have any recourse. They could go to the man and try man's ways of taking care of the situation, but man doesn't have a solution. Man doesn't have a cure. Now, today, we do have treatments for leprosy. They're effective. They can bring the progress of the disease to a halt, basically. But they can't cure it. It's known as Hansen's disease now instead of leprosy. And there are some places in the world where there are colonies, which we would call leper colonies. But they are arrested in their development because of the medications that we've got available. But no cure has yet been found to completely eliminate the disease. Jesus touched him and he was immediately cured immediately cleansed. That is a picture of what happens to us when we're touched by our Savior. What a marvelous picture this is. Now again, mankind has no way to accomplish these things. But yet it was written in the law, recorded in the law, that this is what you do if you no longer have leprosy. If by some miracle you are able to be set free from this terrible dreaded disease. Again, there was no record of it in the Scriptures that anybody had ever, ever gone to the priest for that particular ritual because there was nobody recorded in the Scripture where the leper had been cleansed. So Jesus, in verse 4, says, See that you tell no one. I love it when every miracle that Jesus does, almost all of them, He says, Don't tell anyone. Keep it quiet. Keep it to yourself. Oh, sure. I can do that. <laughs> I can't imagine if Jesus were to tell me, don't tell anyone, 
Oh, Lord, but I've got to. I've got to tell somebody. This is burning inside of me. I've got to let people know that I've been set free. I've got to let people know that I've been completely delivered from my sin burden. I've got to let people know that I am alive in Christ a new creation, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I've got to let people know that I am set free from the burden of sin and I am alive in Christ. Abundant life has been given to me. I've been given His righteousness instead of my own filthy rags. I am a new creation in Christ. I am more than a conqueror. I am absolutely convinced that I am a child of God and I have an inheritance because I'm His Son. Do you know that that is what we should be doing? And that's what that man, I'm sure, wanted to do. I can't keep it silent. I've got to let somebody know. But Jesus says, don't tell anyone. But this is what has to happen, Jesus goes on to say in verse 4. Go your way, show yourself to the priest, which was in obedience to the Levitical commandments in the book of Leviticus, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. They wouldn't likely accept his word. But if he goes to the priest and demonstrates that he's been cleansed, the priest would have no other option but to follow through with the command of Moses in Leviticus that says, says you've got to get two turtle doves, you've got to go through that process, set the one alive free as a testimony to the priests. Jesus is saying, I want them to know. I want them to realize that there's power that is being manifest by the Messiah Himself. They need to understand that He has come. And Jesus is saying to this one, go and do that which has been commanded by Moses in the law so that they will see Some did. It tells us later on in the Gospel records that many of the priests came to faith in Christ after the resurrection. But they began to understand the power that was manifest in His life was a power that could only come from God alone. That's why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Because he, as a Pharisee, understood that this power that he was manifesting, these words that he had been speaking, nobody else could ever have done or said those things except that he was from God. Nicodemus recognized that. Fortunately, Nicodemus, along with Joseph, were among those who believed and received the truth. Many did not, but some did. There's a lot of people that you and I know who are still living separate lives from God. They're separated by their leprous condition. And they cannot enter into the family of God unless they are given that touch of Jesus that He made available to this leper in this story. But they need to know. Somehow this leper knew Jesus could heal, could cleanse him, that Jesus would do it if He was willing and He was able to. He had no doubt about this. He's not the only one. The next part of the story tells us that a centurion comes to Jesus. Verse 5 says, 
Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those all who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, no, not in Israel. The centurion was a Gentile. But not only that, he was a very powerful man among Roman soldiers. A centurion was the head of, a leader of, a group of 100 soldiers in his particular group of military personnel. There was a Roman legion that consisted of 6,000 men, and that was broken up into 60 centurii. And each centurion had a hundred men in his command. Now he was under authority. He had the authority of Caesar and everything that Caesar commanded through those others who were above them in the legion would be now having to be obeyed by him because he had an authority that he had to adhere to that authority's commands. And so it was that as he received commands, he also would give commands to those who were under him, and they had to obey him also. So he understood the authority that comes from a higher source through him to others. And he's recognizing that Jesus has some kind of authority that he is under and everything that he says must be obeyed. And as a result of his own experience as a centurion, he comes to Jesus expecting that Jesus would have the same kind of authority and be able to speak the same kind of commands and by the speaking of them, that would be accomplished. That's great faith. That is great faith. He's a Gentile. Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles, but this particular Gentile was unique. Not only was he a centurion, but Luke tells us that he was actually loved by the people in Capernaum because he had actually donated the money to build their synagogue. He had befriended the Jews. He didn't want them to be his enemy. He wanted to associate with them to learn their ways, to learn their language, to learn their customs, and he wanted to be able to spend time in that region without the kind of animosity that existed between Rome and the Jews. He understood that the Jews hated Gentiles. In fact, Jews thought of Gentiles as being fodder for the fires of hell. They did not want anything to do with the Roman people. Whether they were centurions or just soldiers in the army, it didn't matter. But there were some exceptions, and this man was certainly an exception. In fact, Luke tells us it wasn't he who actually came, but he sent the leaders of the Jews, the leaders of the synagogue that he had helped build, to go and make this request on his behalf. Mark doesn't give, uh, Matthew doesn't give us those details, but Luke does. But in any case, what was told here by Luke is simply this. This centurion has a servant whom he loves. He wants the servant to be well. 
And so he sends these people to ask of Jesus, please, I'm asking for you to heal my servant. And when Jesus says, I'll go to your house and I'll heal him, Jesus is agreeing to the request. But the centurion knew that if he would enter into the centurion's home, that Jesus, as a Jew, would be again defiled. And the centurion said, I don't want him to even come into my home. So tell him, if he suggests that, just make the command and I'll trust that the healing will take place. So that's the situation that we find ourselves reading in this context. This man, a Gentile, an outsider, has sent word to Jesus, has come to Jesus requesting that he heal his precious young servant. He has compassion on this servant of his. Now, servants were nothing more than property. In most cases, servants would be just simply forgotten, left to die, Get another one. It's just like replacing a hammer that broke in the eyes of many of the people in that day. But this centurion had a heart. And in his having spent time in that nation of the Hebrew people, rubbing shoulders with some of them, learning their ways, recognizing that they served a God and they were faithful to their God, as much as they didn't understand about their God, he was impressed by their culture. And he wanted to know more. And when he started hearing about this man who was from Galilee, who was doing some miracles throughout the land, it perked his interest. And when that servant became ill, he realized there's only one person that I know of that might be able to take care of this situation, and I'm going to send for him. And I know I can't go there to ask of him directly. I know that he will not be able to come into my house but I know that because he is a man of authority, and like I am, he will command, he will give the order, and it will be done. And so this Gentile, the centurion, had faith in Jesus' ability to do so. And when Jesus hears of this faith, he marvels. He marvels. It's a strong Greek word for marvel. It says, wonderment beyond measure. Wow. He was impressed. Why? Because there was nobody in all of Israel that he had encountered that had such faith as this one individual had. Now, there's only one other place in the Word of God in the New Testament where it says that Jesus marveled. Do you know where it is? Jesus marveled at his people's unbelief in his hometown. I hope that in every one of our hearts we would have the kind of faith that this centurion had and allow what God himself can do through us, for us, in us, by us to be cause of his marveling at us in the same way. I just so want that for myself. He marveled because he had such great faith. And then in verse 11, he says something of great interest to me. I hope to you. He says simply, And I say to you, talking to all of the people who were following after him, those multitudes of people that were behind him as they had observed the leper come and as they had observed the request of the centurion, and now he turns to them and he says, I say to you, you people of God, you Jews, that many will come from east and west, 
and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to his fellow Jewish citizens? The Gentiles will come and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and there will be many of you who won't be able to enter into that which is offered to you. The kingdom belonged to them. They thought that it was an automatic thing. But what Jesus is here saying is, no, there's not going to be any such way into the kingdom if you believe that it's by your descendancy from Abraham, if you believe that your lineage is all that you need to enter into the kingdom, then you haven't been hearing what I've been saying. He has said just the opposite of that before they came down from the mountain of of the Sermon on the Mount where he spoke specifically, if your righteousness is not greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter. And what he's saying here is not only will it be that those of you who think you are better won't enter in, he's saying the Gentiles will enter in. This would be a shock to all of them. Gentiles entering into the kingdom, seated by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How could that possibly be? There's no way that that would be. But if they had only seen the Word of God more clearly, if they only had understood what God had said, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to make sure that the Gentiles knew about their God and that their God would extend His favor to them. That was His plan. That was His intent. But they didn't understand it. They didn't have anything to do with the Gentiles. But Jesus is here saying the Gentiles are going to come from east and west, from all over the world. Many will come. But as far as those who think they are automatically in, they've got another thing coming. They will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, I hope there's not in yours, that that is an everlasting punishment that is described by Jesus elsewhere, and by Paul, and by the other apostles as well, that there is a punishment coming for those who will not receive the truth. And that includes this concept that Jesus is speaking of here, where there will be gnashing of teeth, weeping, sorrow, because they will be separated from their God, They thought they knew Him, but they did not. They thought they were doing the right things, but they were not. Everything that they believed was wrong. Everything they understood about their God was misrepresented. And because they did not open their hearts to the truth of God's Word, to let the light shine in them, they lived in darkness. Continued in that darkness. And since they loved the darkness rather than the light, they continued in outer darkness for all eternity. That's the message of Jesus to those who fail to understand, who don't want to receive His cleansing. So in verse 13, Jesus turned to the disciple and He said to the centurion, rather, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Remarkable. Jesus cleanses a leper, one who is undeserving, unwanted, 
one who was cast away from society, meeting his need, cleansing him from his leprosy. A Gentile coming to Jesus, a man who was totally unworthy as far as the Jew was concerned, to even step into the very presence of a holy God. And yet Jesus is saying, Yes, I will. Even for that which is unworthy. If there's anybody that thinks themselves to be unworthy, it's true you are. But that is no reason to think that God can look upon you in your unworthiness and say, you're mine. You will be cleansed of all of your unrighteousness if you receive by faith that which He has done. Go tell somebody. The leper couldn't keep himself from letting people know. By the way, it says later on in the Word of God that his testimony spread throughout all the land. He told everybody that he came into contact with, I'm convinced of that. And so did all of the others that Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Think of Jairus, the leader in the synagogue, when Jesus raised his daughter from the dead. Do you think he kept silent? I don't think that that's the case. Should we be any different when we know what Jesus has done for us? There's one more that I want to give as an example here before we close today. Peter's mother-in-law. Women were kind of second-class citizens in Jewry in Jesus' day. They didn't hold the same place in society as men did. Ladies, that's just the way it was back then. I'm grateful that it's not so now although some, I think, still think so, but I think we've come a long ways from those days. There were times, even in this country, when women weren't allowed to vote. We finally got through that. We got sensible and decided that we need to have you women casting your votes because you're smarter than us men are as far as the integrity of others that you see that we don't happen to see and keep on voting because you vote for right causes, and I'm glad for that. Some women don't, but I know that you all do. Women have been blessed in the Christian world because you've been placed in a level of equality with men. You're not under us in any way. Jesus came to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick. I don't know if any of you have been involved in the Catholicism. I know I was. And I was always told that the Pope was celibate. Priests are celibate. The reason? Well, because they could not serve in the church if they were married. Why then was Peter, their first Pope, married? 
Well, it's a question that I like to ask. I don't know if they have a really logical answer, but it is true that Peter was married. He brought his wife with him when he traveled. Paul tells us that in the book of Acts. Peter had a wife. He had a mother-in-law who was sick. And it tells us in verse 14, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. I like that. The fever just simply left her. Now, I don't know if you remember, if you've been sick any time recently, and most of you have probably suffered a little bit of an infirmity from time to time where you've had a fever, and you get over the fever, and once the fever breaks, you're not apt to get right up and start doing things because you're still a drained of energy for a while. That's not the case with her, is it? It tells us that immediately she got up and she started serving. That's a wonderful story. It tells me that when Jesus heals, He heals completely. Amen. He heals completely. And it is absolutely true. When Jesus does something, He always does something well. Every time. Verse 16 continues with, When evening had come, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, and this is what we referred to earlier and I'm mentioning it again here, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He did that for you and for me. He took it upon himself. Oh, people of God, recognize what Jesus has indeed done for all of us. He bore our iniquities. He took them upon Himself. Our infirmities, our sicknesses, our pain, our sorrows, our difficulties, our troubles, our whatever that we have to face in life. And we are, all of us, having to go through with all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of trials. It's part of who we are and where we are and the time in which we live. It is going to continue and we must live through those situations trusting in His ability, His willingness to do for us what we ask of Him in faith to do. So keep on coming to the Lord. Keep on pursuing those things that you desire. He loves to give good gifts unto His children. He gives you the desires of your heart. The promises of of God are yes and amen. He just knows that every one of us has a need and He is willing to meet those needs in His time. We just need to trust Him for that. We need to believe His Word that says He will never forsake us. He will never leave us. He will always be there for us in trouble, in difficulties, in times of distress in persecutions. Be patient. Patience brings something of great value. Perseverance. Tribulation is common among us. But be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. Every one of us can trust in him because He has the power to do those things. He had the power to cleanse a leper. He had the power 
to meet the need of the one who was unworthy. He had the power to meet the need of one who was of a lowly class. No matter what your station in life, no matter what your position might be, no matter who you may be, Jesus is the same yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. Be so ever grateful for His wonderful, wonderful promise to us all that He loves you and me with undying love. And He wants the very best for all of us. Let's trust Him for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.